Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. Someone had to find the cave. Someone had to mix the pigments. Someone has to stand there and hold the torch while the artist does it. And he said, I'm holding the torch. In this episode, I speak with Ed Ruscha, Anne Doran, and Deborah Treisman about their new book on the life and work of the legendary contemporary art curator and museum director, Walter Hopps. When Walter Hopps became the director of Washington's Corcoran Gallery of Art at age 34, the New York Times described him as the most gifted museum man on the West Coast and in the field of contemporary art, possibly in the nation. Famous for his groundbreaking exhibitions, his support for living artists, and his extraordinary, if eccentric, work ethic, Hopps cast a bright and early light on the work of a generation of leading West Coast artists, including Ed Ruscha, Ed Keenholz, Larry Bell, Ed Moses, and Robert Irwin. The Dream Colony, A Life in Art, published earlier this year, is a vivid account by Walter Hopps of his life, compiled by Anne Doran and edited by Deborah Treisman, with an introduction by Ed Ruscha. This summer, Anne, Deborah, and Ed came to the Getty to speak about their book. I moderated the discussion in front of a packed house in the Harold Williams Auditorium. So um, let's start with you, Ed. Uh, how and when did you meet Walter Hopps, and what was his reputation like when you met him? Let's see, I met him about 1960 or 61 in L.A. I met him through Joe Good, who uh, occupied the back of his house in uh, Pasadena as a studio. And um, right away, I, I knew this guy had some kind of connection to the universe in, in a lot of ways. And uh, he, I could see that he was somebody who was, uh, I mean, he could make a spectator sport out of talking. <laughs> you got here to Chenard in 59 or 58? 59 and 60, yeah. So, so you got to Walter right away somehow? Uh, didn't meet Walter. Of... I don't think he ever came to the school there, but he was a, a figure in the art world that uh, out on La Cienega where everything was supposedly happening. Uh, I had a vivid memory of him fielding questions. He, he appreciated when you quizzed him on things because he had a, an immense uh, memory for all kinds of things relating to art, music, literature, and all that. He had a way of uh, standing and sort of preparing himself ready to talk. And he would take a little breather, maybe a gulp or two or something, to answer a question. And he'd light a bum a cigarette, light a cigarette, <laughs> and uh, begin to pace across the floor. He, he more or less like glided rather than walked, which gave me the idea that this guy can walk on air. <laughs> <laughs> you, you say in the introduction, you say that he didn't live or work by normal standards, that he was never entirely taken up by a job, that he kept odd hours, and that he had the ability to rhapsodize. He knew everything that was happening in all the cross currents, and that he was more an artist than a businessman. It's a pretty good description of him. <laughs> he, he, if he was here, he'd agree with me, maybe. And if you read the book, you'll see 
his connection to the world and how he got interested in art in the very beginning and he got interested in photography and he made little photographic collages and all that. All that contributed to his uh, outlook in the world. I mean, he could mix oil and water together. He could make two unlike people get with each other. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. It would be like Wally Berman and Ed Keenholz. And uh, as the way Walter described it, Wally felt that Keenholz was too body and crude. And uh, Keenholz thought Wally Berman was uh, spiritually misty, was his <laughs> words. Too spiritually misty. I like that. But that's uh, pure Walter Hobbs. Yeah. Deborah, tell us how you met Walter. And I know that you met him with Anne. Yeah, I met him much later than Ed. I was interviewing to be the managing editor of a literary and art quarterly called Grand Street, which was run by Gene Stein and where Walter was the art editor. And Anne at that point was a contributing editor. So I was 23 at the time and I, I didn't know very much about Walter. I knew the basics about his past and he wanted to meet at the Temple Bar in New York, very dark red velvet line bar. And uh, so I went there sort of nervously, and at some point, about half an hour after our interview time, Walter sauntered in with Anne, with his big fedora on, and uh, plopped down a file of photographs and said, well, we're trying to do this portfolio. Which picture should we use? And that was my interview. And um, <laughs> She did really well. And after- <laughs> it, was, it was going to be a portfolio on a theme of some kind. It was a theme. It was um, photographs of graffiti memorials to dead gang members. And, uh, that wasn't your specialty, I, I assume. I, I had no experience, but I, I don't think it mattered. I don't think it mattered. I Not think he all. was wanted to see if whoever was going to be in this job could look at a photograph, and that was, you know, that was what he could do. He could look at an artwork and see it, and not just be thinking about could you use it. Yeah, and you got the job. I got the job, yeah, and yeah. and two weeks later, Walter had um, a major brain aneurysm and was in a coma for several months and absent for for quite some time and then miraculously started to recover after that. And so we got to work together for four years, during which he was in charge of a lot of the art that ran in the magazine and and also in charge of introducing the artists, writing short essays about them. And um, Walter didn't really like to write. As Ed said, Walter was a talker. He was a speaker. He, He was someone who told stories. So that was what he did. Usually he would speak whether to to Anne, who was working at the magazine, or to Gene Stein, or to me, and I would take whatever he had said and make it into a written piece. And so that was how we started working together, and that was eventually how this book evolved. Yeah, so, so, well, Anne, tell us how you met Walter. I met him in art school. Art school. Yeah, he'd been fired from the Corcoran and um, I was going to the Corcoran School of Art a couple of years later, and there was a lot of commotion at school. Walter Hopps was coming to school to look at the senior studios. Because he was famous by then. Well, he was and really famous. He was, <laughs> he was infamous. Yeah, yeah. Um, notorious. Notorious. And uh, Walter, in those days, wore two pairs of glasses to look at art. He, I, he, he never really... Uh, you mean simultaneously he had two pairs yeah, on? Yeah, well, he wore one pair all the time, and then there was a second pair that went on to look for close work. And he was tall, and, uh, and he had, well, two pairs of glasses on, and he scared me. 
I mean, I was, he was terrifying presence, and also because he didn't say anything. He just stood there and looked at the work. And I didn't say anything, he didn't say anything, and his, you know, handlers sort of whisked him out of my studio. He told me later he really liked the work, and, and he ended up being a real champion of it when I moved to New York later, but... Yeah. That was how I first encountered him. Yeah. Um, so, so consistent with all of your recollections of Walter is a sense that he's, as Ed described, him, rhapsodized. And you know, Deborah talked about him as a storyteller. And in putting this book together, I mean, you guys had to work with his speaking. That was the basis of it. You recorded him. And then Deborah, who's the fiction editor of The New Yorker, had to edit the text of the scripts from the recordings that you got. And when did that all happen? When did the book start? We think it started around 2001. You think? They think. <laughs> it's all a little fuzzy it's now. It's all a little fuzzy um, now. No, we started talking about it in the late 90s. 90s. I had moved on to The New Yorker from Grand Street, and, um, and I had worked with Walter on a couple of art catalog essays that were longer projects, and just thought, he has so many other things to say, and why are these things not being recorded? And why not tell the whole story? Let's get it all done. And... Um, so Anne agreed to do the taping. Walter was in Houston at the time, and she would go down to well, Houston and sit there and the make him talk. The important part, really, is that Deborah got us a book contract yeah. <laughs> with Bloomsbury. Did the interviewing start at the beginning? Did you just say, tell us about your, your family? Tell us about the birth of the Yeah, I, I tried years. to go chronologically. Anne tried. And, it's nothing against Anne. Walter didn't think chronologically. Yeah. <laughs> so he would tell the stories that he most wanted to tell in mm-hmm. the beginning. Then we backtrack. Then we'd for, forward track. Anne would have to say, okay, but what about this? Why haven't you talked about that? Why haven't we thought about this? And so there was a lot of kind of coaxing and managing to, to get to fill in the gaps in, in his stories. And the idea was that I would then take these tapes and come up with some sort of structure for making them into a book. And it wasn't straight autobiography. He had artists he wanted to devote whole chapters to and... And so I was starting to work on that, and I'd gotten through actually really just doing his childhood um, when he died in 2005. And so at that point, we no longer had this option, which I'd always thought we would have, to have him go back and fill in gaps that he hadn't covered and talk about the later years in his life and so on. That sort of explains why the book came out in 2017 when he died in 2005, because it took some time to recover from that setback and then actually do it without him. Yeah, I bet. So, so, Ed, you heard some stories, probably not for the first time, reading this book. You probably were hearing him tell the stories that you'd heard many, many times. But you must have heard stories that were new to you that he told. Did you know as much about his family life, that is, his parents and his grandparents and his grandfather who goes to Mexico? And as I remember, he was a kind of a hardware store guy. And he, he was offered a chance to get 50% ownership on the export to Mexico of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. And he chose not to do that. Instead, he had a great idea, which was going to be peanut butter tacos. Yeah. yeah. And it turned out peanut butter tacos didn't work out so well. I mean, but... That so was going you, to make the hops name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> didn't happen. Um, but so <laughs> was there a lot in this that you didn't know, or was he telling these stories There was a lot in this life? book I didn't know. Like, for instance, the city or town of Tampico, Mexico. And he apparently had a lot of connections to that through his family. And... Um, went back and forth, and we actually never called him Walter. We always called him Chico. And um, I read the book, and but I was it clear in there how he got the name Chico? No. See, so that's a mystery. He never explained. <laughs> There's probably somebody in this crowd here, maybe Ed Moses or someone who might know. 
the origin of the name Chico. And then later on, people just started calling him Walter. Hmm? Too informal. <laughs> okay, and Moses says that Walter thought Chico was too informal. <laughs> to come from Chico Marx, maybe? So he, he talks a lot about his high school years. You put that together in the book so well. He talks about the girls, of course, but he also talks about music. And that was new to me, that he had so much involvement in music. Everything from seeing and hearing Igor Stravinsky conduct his song of Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, to seeing and hearing Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Billie Holiday. Uh, what, what was it like? What was he telling you about those years of his pursuit of music? And that precedes a kind of engagement with art. I think it was another world. Walter, wherever he was, he was there. The world of jazz in Southern California at that time was a world like the world of art in Southern California at that time. It was another world that he could enter into. He was so passionate about creativity and on a lot of different levels. It was just another entrancing group of people making entrancing things. Yeah. Um, and, and in a way, it was his first experience of curating because he had this idea true. with his college friend of, of <laughs> booking music tours um, and bringing jazz musicians to campus. And he thought that would be his big success. <laughs> there, um, is a, there is a thread here about not making money in the yeah, family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he thought that There's the jazz musicians would story. make all the money and the artists would be impoverished. What it says about him, I think, is that he heard this music that was wonderful to him and that he couldn't, he kept, you know, he went way out of his way. He joined the Kiwanis Youth Club, so he'd go to San Francisco and sneak off to jazz clubs because once he discovered something amazing, he wanted other people to hear it and appreciate it, so he wanted to book these shows. And that, I think, was his response to, to almost anything he admired was, let's get it to people. Let's have other people see this. Let's organize this. it. Let's do something with it. Let's put on a show. At about the same time, there was a program when he was in high school that took interested, talented students out to art spaces, including private collections, like the Ehrensburg Collection. And he went to the Ehrensburg House. It's where he first saw Duchamp's work, for example, like that. And then he got invited back a number of times by the Ehrensburg because he was so engaging as a person, as a child, as a curious young person. Tell us about that. I think the Ehrensburgs were incredibly kind to him. He lied to his parents and told them that he was still doing whatever improving program he had been signed up for, but he was going to the Ehrensburgs once a week. And I, I do think it was his intelligence, his enthusiasm, his curiosity, and they were kind to him. They explained the art to him. They had wonderful art. It was a collection that was supposed to go to Philadelphia, I believe. UCLA. It ended yeah, up in yeah, Philadelphia. It, up. it was supposed to go to UCLA at one time. They signed the contract for it. That's and right. And they had to build a museum for it, but they never got the museum built. Yeah. This extraordinary collection of avant-garde art in California. And um, there is a really nice story in the book about how uh, Mrs. Ehrensberg came upon him one day sort of patting a Brancusi. And... Uh, Walter jumped back and was embarrassed, but she invited him to take the Brancusi to lunch so he could have it on the lunch table and keep patting it and looking at it. And uh, I, I think they were really good to him. And I, among a few other people in California were his real mentors in avant-garde art. And we're assuming that everyone here knows of the Ehrensberg collection, but uh, maybe we should describe it more. Ed, did you see it when, when it was in the house? 
I, n- I never visited the Ehrenberg's house, no. Is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I believe that the house still stands where it did, yeah. 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 which was up on North La Brea Avenue. And I think Walter spent a lot of time there. And Walter was really quite aware of the expense that people would go to to buy artworks, and yet he, in, in his personal life, lacked the trait of being resourceful enough to make a living for himself. Anything like said, commercial <laughs> was of no interest to him at all. So you couldn't talk to him and say, hey, this dealer, I mean, I'm having trouble with this dealer. He wouldn't care about that. He only cared about the art and not about the commerce. Yeah. But the Ehrenberg, a couple of things happened with that, and that was the introduction to surrealism and to so Duchamp and Magritte and de Chirico and Brancusi, so the kind of high modernist moments. But it also led to other galleries. There was a gallery that the artist named Copley had. Bill Copley had Bill a Copley. gallery for six months. And he did six different exhibitions. Tell us about that. And this yeah. is late 50s, so this is just about the time Ed's coming to L.A. There is a wonderful little booklet that Bill Copley put out. He was a great writer. His, his father was a newspaper man. He grew up in San Diego, I think. Uh, Bill Copley did? Yeah. yeah, and Bill came back after a pretty bad war. He saw action in Europe um, to write for his father. And his father was quite conservative and... Uh, it didn't really go well. And uh, he had a drunken brother-in-law called John Ployart who convinced Phil that they should show surrealist art in Hollywood. And uh, that didn't go well either. (laughs) Um, But they had six great shows. Bill became an artist because of that experience, but he also became a great collector. And that was the basis of his collection. The beginnings of his collection was uh, he felt bad for the artists. In fact, I think he had guaranteed them a certain number of sales. So he bought all the work uh, that didn't (laughs) sell. He bought like 150 Cornell boxes for, you know, 50 bucks each, because he had told Cornell he would. Yeah. He talks about in the book, he talks about going to a surrealist bookstore in West Hollywood, where he first saw books by Hans Belmer, for example, and Duchamp's Green Box, and he bought for himself the Duchamp Green Box, as a birthday present for $25. In a rather sneaky way. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, he had wandered into this bookstore. It was, the bookstore was owned by, uh, was it Mel Royer? Uh, an assistant was there who was sorting the contents of an estate sale. You know, so, sort of someone's estate had been purchased in total, and it hadn't yet been sorted out, and Walter happened to be there and noticed a copy of Duchamp's Green Box. And I think it was maybe his 17th birthday or 16th birthday. He was really very young. And he said, I'd like to buy this and maybe I could just... And the assistant said, well, I don't... You know, we haven't even cataloged it yet. And he said, well, how about I just write you a check for $25? And she said, oh, all right, you know, that's fine. And later he got a phone call because his phone number was on the check from Mr. Royer saying, well, happy birthday. (laughs) 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 Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah. And then he was afraid that he was going to have to return the, yeah. the box. Yeah, no, he let him keep it. Let him keep the box, yeah. Now, Walter goes to Stanford first before he transfers back to UCLA. And he goes to Stanford for all the reasons one might, because he was ambitious. And he, the Bay Area was attractive to him, too. He chooses to go to UCLA because he decides, big mistake, to refuse to take his parents' money 
to pay the cost of going to Stanford, so he had to pay his own way back to UCLA. But he became very interested in the kind of north-south relations, the artists in San Francisco in the Bay Area and the artists in Los Angeles, and he puts together exhibitions that look at both of them and so forth. Ed, when you came, was there a clear sense in Los Angeles of the activity and action going on in San Francisco and that that was a different kind of action going on in San Francisco? Uh, well, that was like the early 60s. And um, I just remember when Walter took this job at the Pasadena Art Museum. I mean, he had his naughty side, too. He took it upon himself to curate the shows, borrow all the works from these collectors around the Los Angeles area, and then take it upon himself to deliver those works back to the collectors. And uh, he did it in a sort of an unconventional way, and he hired this guy named Al Fox, who had a little step van truck with the words fresh fish painted <laughs> on the side. And so Al Fox, he was a radio DJ, and when he wasn't working, he'd work for Walter. And uh, so he'd have a brancusi or something wrapped in a dog blanket bouncing around in this truck, and Walter would just be happy that the thing finally reached its destination. And uh, when Al couldn't be reached, Joe Good and I, were, uh, Walter would hire us to do the same thing, except he'd lend us his Studebaker station wagon, and we would deliver valuable artworks around the L.A. area, like a Giacometti and a Matisse sculpture, all wrapped in dog blankets. <laughs> uh, anyway, everything happily came together, but Walter's approach to that was very amusing, but thorough. And as far as I know, he never got in trouble for it. <laughs> well, let me back up to 1952, which is when Walter rents a space off San Vicente in Brentwood to show Bay Area painting in Los Angeles. And he named that space after a man that, that his friend killed in a car accident. The man who died was named Maurice Sindel, and he called the gallery the Sindel Studio. If I remember correctly from the book, he called it that because he just could have liked the magic of the name, Maurice Sindel. It wasn't to honor the man who was killed. Or was it? Why did he choose to name it after the man who was well, killed? He, he, um, he I think he appreciated sort of, the creativity of the man. He appreciated the creativity of this of story, the which man, was Maurice, Maurice Sindel, Sindel was a farmer who decided to commit suicide and probably had to wait on this road a really long time for a car to come along and hit him. Um, and so Walter's friend, Jim Newman, with whom he'd done the music booking, was driving along, actually, and Jim Newman corrected the story that Walter had been telling for years because Jim Newman wasn't driving, his friend was driving. And suddenly, you know, they're going pretty fast on a long, flat road, and there's a truck parked. Suddenly, someone dives out from in front of it and under the wheels of the car. And they, I mean, they had zero warning and no choice but to kill him. And this was his form of suicide. And I think Walter thought there was some creativity in that. And I think he thought that perhaps this man deserved to be an artist. So after that incident, Walter and some of his friends, I don't know if you were involved in that, Keenholz was involved in it, started making works of art, which were by Maurice Sindel, and signing them Maurice Sindel. And, and I think he took a lot of pleasure in the idea that someday someone might write a dissertation <laughs> on the work of Maurice, Maurice Sindel, Sindel, and they made it particularly sort of grotesque and, and lewd and so on. Um, and that was his way of letting this man free, I think. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so Sindel Studio was named after, after that man. And the studio lasts about three and a half years, but it's there that 
He meets Keenholz, I think, or Keenholz and Berman come together at that studio? He was working at Sindel. Keenholz was curating at Now Gallery, and so they crossed paths. He had met Berman in 53. Walter had a one-person show of his own photographic work in um, the Cornet Louvre, which was an art house movie theater that showed art in the lobby. And, and uh, he met Wallace Berman and Shirley Berman. They came to his opening there. And uh, he got to be friends. He loved Wallace Berman's work. But Wallace didn't want to show at Sindel. So they were just friends for a long time. He didn't want to show because he didn't like the space or because he didn't like the reputation of the gallery? He was a very retiring person. I think he didn't necessarily want to show at all. But it is there that Keenholz comes into the picture, yes, is that right? Yes, he does. Which ultimately leads to Ferris. So let's That's get right. to Ferris and the start of Ferris he, Gallery. He gave Keenholz a show at Sindel, maybe more than one, right? I think so, yeah. Anyway, they, they got to know each other and they had some art partnerships, um, a couple of action shows and... Uh, All City Art All City Art Festival. Yeah, Festival. tell us about that because that was a bit of a lark. Well, I think Keenholz was very resourceful when it came to getting <laughs> assignments and getting city money, and he had decided he would apply to run this All City Arts Festival, and he got a budget to do it in Barnstall Park, and he asked Walter to to do it with him, and for the first time they were able to include work from commercial galleries, so they could show Sindel work there and now gallery uh, work there, and. Um, Throughout the process, I mean, they were allowed access to these sort of city storehouses of lumber and wire, whatever else they might need to set up this art fair. So um, Keenholz, you know, was pulling this out and stashing it, I think, maybe at Sindel or somewhere else, (laughs) and preparing to create their own gallery somewhere with that money. He was also, I think, paying $2 an hour to various poets so that they could lie on the hillside and muse, and that, in the way, was working. In that show, they showed children's art. They showed art they had made themselves. I think Maurice Sindel... Maurice Sindel had a, had had a very graphic nude, <laughs> in, in that nude show with uh, nasty works. Like wood yeah. shavings, they pubic hair that, everything. that was sort of yeah. outlawed at some point. Yeah, it was. Uh, Walter had a history of shows throughout his life where they were just big and had everything in them. And I, in some ways, I always felt like Walter anticipated the internet you know he it's the first of many shows where he just sort of piled everything in okay so let's get to the ferris and the start of the ferris and (laughs) and add your early memories of the ferris gallery when i met walter i don't think he had anything to do with the ferris gallery he was split from that it was already so ferris too but he had 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 a long-term relationship with wally berman and george herms and Moses and a lot of other people that began to show their work at the Ferris, but but Walter was uh, so unlike a gallery director or at least somebody who would sell art that that I think he had limited interest in that, and he was more the other side, and so he really divorced himself from that gallery world and and took on the museum, which was. Really interesting to see another another side of him. Um, everything was what? Made up. E- everything was made up? <laughs> oh, yeah. Ed Moses says that it was all lies. Everything was made up. But, uh, but, but get us back to Ferris Gotta and then the transition to Ferris too, and the change when Irving Blum comes. So tell us about that history briefly, any one of you. Well, the original Ferris was founded by Keenholz and Walter. Yeah. And they had 
uh, made a contract. They made a contract they, on the, the hot dog stand. They would be partners in art oh, for five God. years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so they they started Ferris together and couldn't sell anything. Had some amazing shows and it was a scene. But at a certain point, I think perhaps the artist expected to sell things and Keenholz expected to be able to do his own work. Uh, which he was trying to do in the back of the gallery with like some mirror so that he could see if someone came in at the front. And uh, Irving Blum appeared on the scene and was everything that Walter and Keenholz weren't because he was a salesman. And he felt that the point of a gallery was to sell art. And so at, at, around that time, Walter bought Ed Keenholz out. And I think... To his dying day, Ed Keenholz felt that he hadn't been properly paid because Walter was supposed to return to him that Studebaker station wagon, which had become a, a lemon and had been passed along to some other poor artist. And so Ed never got his full payment, which was supposed to include the Studebaker. But oh, so that's what happened to that Studebaker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> now it's beginning to piece together. Probably the dog blankets yeah. are still in it somewhere. <laughs> Um, we so, should probably point out that the image that we're looking at on the screen behind us is, as it were, a portrait of Walter by Ed Keenholz from that time. Called Walter Hops, 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 in Walter which he's, hops, hops, um, yeah. instead of selling dirty postcards, he's selling de Kooning. Um, and, and and it's other hop, tell us why artists. it's Hops, Hops, Hops. Uh, because he was Walter Wayne Hops III. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and things were always hopping. <laughs> Around him, so he he went into business with Irving Bloom, and they managed to get um, investment from a wealthy patron of the arts, Sadie Moss, who kept the gallery running, and Irving kept the gallery running. But I think once it became commercially viable, and once once the narrowing down, winnowing down of artists happened that needed to happen in order to make it commercially viable, it was no longer quite so interesting to Walter. But when, when Irving gets involved, then there are more participation of East Coast artists, yeah. and one of them is Warhol, and the famous yeah. exhibition of Warhol. We've got some sound of Walter describing Warhol in that uh, exhibition. This was the last uh, show at Ferris that Walter was, was yeah, so involved in. So let's hear the sound. Warhol was fascinated with the idea of having a show in Hollywood, and the very first show of his pop art was at the new Ferris Gallery. And the 32 original... Uh, Campbell soup cans, which were part stencil and part hand-painted. And there are 32 of them, all different brands. Uh, kidney bean, tomato, pea, you name it. They're done in a very stylized, precise way, except the gold emblem is just a round gold circle. He didn't fill in all the detail, the official... Campbell logo, which you'll see on a can. He simplified it. Subsequently, he did smaller versions. I mean, where a, a canvases where the soup can is smaller. And he did bigger ones. He did one with the label partially ripped off. He did all sorts of variations on it. Uh, but um, he came west for that show. And, and that show was happening right when I went to the Pasadena Art Museum. And that's the last show I had to do with in the new Ferris. But I remember talking with Andy about what did he, how did he, how would he describe the soup cans? They're just in the black and red and gold. 
on a white canvas ground, centered up on both axes, just as simple as they could be. All right. I asked him what he thought of them, and he gave me a funny smile, and he said, I think they're portraits, don't you? I never asked him further what he meant by that. (laughs) (laughs) While uh, he owned part of the Ferris, was doing his work at the Ferris Gallery, he was also advising collectors, and he was giving uh, sort of seminars to young aspiring collectors. I remember Marsha Wiseman in the 80s talking so fondly of those years with Walter about uh, when he would come and give these kind of seminars about these things. Um, And one of the people that he was talking to a lot at the time and helping was Ed Jantz. And tell us about that relationship and how important it was. Well, Ed Jantz was someone whose family um, was, they were real estate moguls um, in L.A. And, and Ed, uh, he participated in that, but he was also, he had a love for contemporary art. And somehow he happened into Ferris at some point and happened on to Walter and um, felt that Walter should be his guide to what was happening. And so they spent years going on trips together, um, going to see art, going to buy art, and Ed would put the money up for Walter to buy something and bring it back and then sell it to someone in L.A., whether it was himself or or someone else. I I think from the way that Walter talked about Jans, he he was really a father to him in that way. He was the father who supported his interests as opposed to the father who didn't. Yeah. So at about this time, it's 1959, Tom Levitt was the director of the Pasadena Art Museum, and Walter began doing freelance work for him. Mm-hmm. Then in 1962, about the time that you're driving around with the truck with the Studebaker for him, uh, Levitt hires Walter to be his curator, single curator, and registrar at the Pasadena Art Museum, which at the time was in the building that's now the USC Pacific Asia Museum. And it was there that Walter organized various exhibitions, Motherwell, Joseph Cornell, Kurt Schwitters, Duchamp. A couple of questions. How did Walter scale up to that amount of activity, that amount of responsibility from going from the Ferris Gallery to something so substantial and with so much at risk and at stake? And what was the Pasadena Art Museum like in the climate and in the circumstances of Los Angeles at the time? Was it the place to go to for this kind of contemporary art? It was a big jump, huh? From uh, (laughs) La Cienega Boulevard to the Pasadena Art Museum and places beyond. And then from there, of course, well, you'll follow his chronology here, but it was stepped to bigger and bigger things. And while he was doing it, he was becoming more and more himself, which is a very enigmatic figure that was called upon to be responsible to his position. And he began to see his position as being an independent person. And uh, we all loved him for it because uh, he didn't play by the game. He sort of made his own hours, ran by his own clock, and um, called people in the middle of the night for maybe nothing, just to talk. And the habits that he exhibited were hilarious but informative, and uh, if you got off track in any way or, like, brought up some obscure person from art history, like, I don't know, you pull a name out, Augustus Vincent Tack. Well, <laughs> now, he would be all over Augustus Vincent Tack for you. <laughs> and um, you'd get a command performance. And so 
these command performances from this gentleman, he could do anything he wanted to do. I didn't care if he showed up at the museum at the proper time or not. It didn't matter to us. It's just that Walter was always there, and Walter was Chico. <laughs> <laughs> and he put you in your first museum show. Yeah, yeah the, that's the right. new painting of Common Objects show in 1962. And you yeah. did the poster for it, as I recall. Well, that came about probably at the last minute uh, because that's the way he was. I think he began to be a little more responsible later on, but uh, at the Pasadena Art Museum, he had these dreams that uh, time would pass and he'd be pacing the floor and uh, with these ideas that eventually would fall into place. But he was bad at making catalogs and he always dreamed about producing catalogs. And uh, we were going to make a catalog for that uh, new painting of Common Objects, and uh, that thing never really came together. But I think there's a prototype somewhere, and maybe uh, Caroline Huber maybe has that in her archive of, of Walters. But he said, well, at least let's make a poster out of it. And so I knew about this place called the Majestic Poster Press, and we called them and uh, sort of gave them directions over the telephone. And we got a poster back in a three or four days. And so at least we had a poster from the thing, but the catalog never really existed, which made it sort of delicious in a way. <laughs> but you should describe the poster. And you went there and knew about it because these people made posters for... I don't know, like boxing matches or something? Yeah, yeah, circus posters and boxing matches. And, and you could just tell them, use big type, make it big, make it loud, uh, do it quick. <laughs> so that was 62, and he was at that time already preparing the Duchamp exhibition, which would open in 63. And about the time that's about to open, Levitt leaves the Pasadena Art Museum and guess who takes his place, talking about scaling up now to become the acting director of the Pasadena Art Museum, but Walter. What was that moment like, and how did he respond to those responsibilities? I know from going through a bit of the archive with Caroline, it's just down on a square in the calendar. It's like, Pasadena, okay. <laughs> He'd met Duchamp first at the Aaronsbergs, very briefly, um, and then he met him again in New York, and they became quite friendly, and he wanted to do a retrospective of Duchamp's work, and which hadn't been done. He hadn't had a museum show in America, and Duchamp was quite amenable to this, and he knew Pasadena really well. He'd had a, a, a girlfriend in Pasadena, apparently, and so he knew the Green Hotel, and, and he was kind of charmed by the idea that his first museum retrospective would be there. Um, and so Walter just worked very closely with him to assemble that show, and it was um, a real... I think, labor of love for him, partly because he, his first discovery of, of Duchamp had happened at, at age 15 in this situation of, of the entering the Arensberg's yeah. house. Um, Was it then that he hires Jim Demetrian to be his kind of assistant director or his chief curator? It's around 1963. Yeah. And Jim was teaching at Pomona College. Pomona College, and he wasn't a, a museum person, and I think there was a little resistance. Walter said, I want you to be my chief curator. And Jim was like, I'm, I'm not really a museum person. And I think Walter saw in him, Jim Demetrian ended up being a magnificent museum person. Fantastic, yeah. A fantastic museum person, first at Des Moines, and then the and Hirschhorn. Then the Hirschhorn yeah. But Walter really respected his eye. I, I don't really know how they first met. But uh, 
Walter also thought that he needed a backup. At that point, Walter's uh, addiction to methamphetamine had was growing, and uh, he wasn't sure he was going to last at Pasadena. He thought he might leave or be asked to leave, and he finally convinced Jim Demetrian, or so he says, to, to take the job of chief curator by saying, I may not be here forever, and I want it to be you. I'm picking you as my replacement now. Yeah. And that actually came to pass, that Walter left and Jim became director eventually. Things happened rather quickly. I mean, at that time, 63 then is the Duchamp exhibition, 65 is Jasper John's exhibition, Frank Stella. If he's on speed as much as he said he was, he was enormously productive. Well, that was because he was on speed, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he was so productive. I can't um, answer that. And, <laughs> and also yeah, putting all of his assistants on speed. Um, but he he knew he was going to crash and burn and and so he hit this point i think when the cornell show was was being worked on um 67 or perhaps 66 when he he went on a trip to gather art and came back and got off the plane in la and sat down in a chair and suddenly 3 hours had passed and then another few hours had passed and he uh called up a psychiatrist and basically said come and get me so he was committed for a time and that was the point where one board trustee, Harold Jurgensen, came to the hospital and said, can we send you an assistant? Can you work on the budget from here? And he said, of course, and, and did that. And, and Robert Rowan, who was not pleased with the situation, asked for his resignation. So Walter stepped down. Jim Demetrian became acting director. Walter was still helping to finish up the Cornell show. Jim Demetrian goes to get some Cornell works in a taxi on the way to the airport, I think in Chicago. Um, From the Bergman collection. Yeah, he's, uh, I think he's seen a specific collector, yeah. And the taxi goes off the ramp the wrong way. There's a terrible accident. Jim's thrown from the car, clutching (laughs) one container of Cornell boxes. One is left in the car and burns. And Demetrian's hospitalized. So Walter comes back to become acting, acting director (laughs) while Demetrian's in the hospital and finish up this show. And that was his last show at Pasadena. But there's somebody at Pasadena uh, who sort of saves him again at that moment by offering him like a fellowship in a think tank in Washington, D.C. That was through Ed Jans, actually. He was out at Pasadena and he didn't really know what to do. And Jans had uh, some affiliation with the Institute for Policy Studies in D.C., which was... Um, run by Marcus Raskin and Richard Barnett. It was a kind of left-wing political think tank. And Ed said, why don't you go here for a year? Just do a fellowship here. And Walter liked the idea, and he went, and it gave him just a little space to to see what was happening in D.C. And while at the IPS, he got to know um, a philanthropic couple, Philip and Lenny Stern, and Lenny Stern was very involved in something called the Washington Gallery of Modern Art, which was... Which I'd never heard of before. Which was failing, and um, (laughs) Walter had various ideas for how to save it, which culminated in not entirely saving it, but making it part of the Corcoran. Um, Ed, so now we have a moment in which Walter leaves Southern California, and and there must be a, a vacuum left in part by his departure because of his great presence as a personality and as a museum professional and a gallerist and a critic. So what was it like when he left? Did you feel that sense of loss? Um, you know, he was one of us <laughs> in many ways. And so 
he just became instantly absent. And that sort of left a hole in the whole scene, especially if you would see him socially and uh, not be able to go to McGuire's saloon out in Eagle Rock with him. And where's Walter now? He's in Washington, D.C., I guess. And uh, I know he uh, he had a, a life to live, and uh, and I, I seem to remember that he had a lot to do with the DuPont Circle uh, That's in what Washington. That's where the gallery was, yeah. Yeah. And it was some outpost of the Corcoran or some relationship mm-hmm. with the Corcoran. Yeah. And so we lost touch with him, but we knew what he was doing. I mean, he was in the museum world back there, and... Uh, and we were always wondering how he was dealing with them, or rather, how they were dealing with him <laughs> in his peculiarities. But uh, we didn't hear any negative press or anything along the way, so he must have been doing all right. Yeah. Well, there was a great story, because he was there during the march on the Pentagon of, in the anti-war era. And uh, you'll recall that, among other things, a number of people, Ginsburg and, and some yippies, wanted to elevate the Pentagon by sitting down and meditating and making it rise. And there was this all kind of crazy activity. Well, he's there at the time, and he's opposed to the war and intrigued by the opportunity of this mass demonstration to do something. And he had a spray can, paint can, I guess he was going to be spraying something. something. Uh, but he had to go back for a meeting. Well, he, he was, he'd brought along some cans of black spray paint because he decided he wasn't going to write anything. He was just going to spray blackness on the Pentagon, and that would be his, his form of protest. And at some point, the police come, and uh, Walter says, I've got a board meeting at the Washington Gallery of Modern Art, and I can't miss that. So he ducks in the bushes, waits for the police to pass him by, and then he runs off to his meeting, um, which just seems very typical of, of the kind of... Not schizophrenic, but multivalent uh, person he was. Now, we're running out of time, so we should move along quickly. Just to give everyone a sense of this, in 1967, he's appointed director of this gallery, the Washington Gallery of Modern Art. Two years later, he's acting director of the Corcoran Gallery. Then a year after that, he's director of the Corcoran. Then a year after that, he was named U.S. Commissioner for the Venice Biennale. And it was while he was in Venice that he received a call from a reporter at the Washington Post asking him if he wanted to comment on his dismissal from the Corcoran, which was the first time that Walter had heard he'd been dismissed from the Corcoran. And then he was saved at that moment by an old friend of his who was a teacher at the University of Chicago at the time, Joshua Taylor, who was head of the National Collection of Fine Arts, who offers him a job, and he takes it. This kind of spinning, you can just feel this sense of spinning out of control. Well, or... And landing on along. his feet. <laughs> <laughs> Spinning along. And it was at that time that uh, those who worked with him, as Ed has described him, always late, grew tired of his being late, and also it was kind of funny, and made a pin. And it happens that we had three such pins. Each of you have one of these. Tell us what the pin says. Uh, it says, Walter Hobbs will be here in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all this kind of crazy antic activity was going on in extraordinarily important places, but the one thing that seemed to be really save him, where there was a kind of a soulmate, was when the Demonils hire him on as an advisor as they're beginning to build their collection and thinking about a museum and ultimately building the museum. Tell us about that transition to the Menil collection. I think that uh, Jean de Menil had already died before Mrs. de Menil thought about building a museum, and I'm not sure how they met. Do you... No, Deborah. They, they'd met in New York. He'd met York. John, John Domenil in New York. He hadn't met Dominique. But they had an extraordinary collection of art that spanned centuries and styles. Their art advisor was a Jesuit priest, which may 
account for the fact that the, the art itself all has a kind of quality about it, it, whether it's Byzantine icons or surrealist art. In the early 80s, she had started to talk to Walter about building a museum for this collection that she had put together for her husband, and he was commuting between Washington, where he was living, in Houston uh, for a few years, and he would stay with Mrs. DeMille in her son's room, Francois DeMille's room. The Philip Johnson designed house. Philip Johnson house, and work down there with her. And she, she really was, I think, the, the first person that gave Walter carte blanche to do the museum that he had always wanted to build and run. So it's both in, in building the collection and in building the building, working with these two extraordinary people, Mrs. Dimonil for the collection and, and Renzo Piano for the, for the building, and then installing it in the most beautifully installed way. It was the kind of culmination. But he continued working with them for quite a number of years, writing, well, speaking catalogs that evidently that Deborah was editing into written text. Uh, but he dies 12 years ago now. He dies 2005. 2005, yeah. What did he die from? Uh, he, he had pneumonia and heart pneumonia. failure. Pneumonia. He, we had been uh, all here. Uh, Walter and George Herms uh, were having a dialogue, and uh, I was moderating uh-huh. And it was a great, great time. It was a great dialogue. And uh, Walter and Caroline, his wife, stayed on for a few more days. And Walter fell ill here. And he's buried in the high desert in Lone Pine in a simple pine box with a telephone. Designed by Richard Jackson. Oh. <laughs> the artist Richard Jackson, yeah. Yeah. What was designed? The box or the phone or both? Uh, the box door. and the phone. Uh, oh, there's a door from a studio. I don't or remember. Something. I think we were just told that there was a phone in there, but uh, the lid was a door from his house, and that was the lid of the casket. <laughs> and the so, Reverend George Herms, who's here tonight, yeah. gave the eulogy. Oh yeah. Now we, I want to ask you each one last question, but I want to flip to the last image. Because this will show you the gang. You can, there's Ed Moses pointing up, looking like a figure out of a Raphael. There, pointing up at Walter, arms crossed, glasses on, over his right shoulder, Jim Rosenquist, over his left shoulder, Bob Rauschenberg. Dennis Hopper's up there. Ed Ruscha's got a drink in his hand to the far right. Now, for each of you, just reflect about the legacy of Walter and what it has meant to you as a, as a person and a professional. And let's begin with Ed and. Go to Anne and Deborah. Well, well, you can look at this picture here and you can see a dominant figure. And it just happens to be Walter Hopps. And um, that's the way he was in real life. As uh, somebody who really uh, commands attention from even the silence that he can give you. And um, then once he spoke, it was sort of miraculous. And um, not something that you would easily forget. Yeah. Uh, generosity. He was incredibly generous, both with artists. And as Deborah said, I mean, if he saw something that he liked, whether it was music or art, he, he was a fan. I mean, I, there's a generosity to fans. It, a real fan wants everyone to see what they see. And for me, I benefited twice from him. He was incredibly supportive of my art. He was always supportive of artists. He was like an artist himself. But also, as a, he, he was a mentor of mine in looking at art 
and he was a, a brilliant teacher. So he just gave and gave. He was the most generous person I've ever met. No. Deborah? I think there are two sort of qualities that stay through his words, and one was the just excitement and almost glee with which he would greet art that he hadn't seen before that was doing something, that he could see what it was doing. And how amazing, you know, having listened to 100 hours of of him talking about art, I think amazing was the word that was spoken the most. (laughs) Um, And art did not stop amazing this man. Throughout his entire life, confronted with creativity of others, he was amazed. And when Calvin Tompkins profiled him for The New Yorker in 1991, there's a moment in the piece where Tompkins asks him, you know, do you consider yourself an artist or is what you do enough? And Walter had this wonderful response. He said, I feel like I come from a tradition that's 25,000 years old where, you know, there's the cave artist who's doing the painting, but someone had to find the cave. Someone had to mix the pigments. Someone has to stand there and hold the torch while the artist does it. And he said, I'm holding the torch. And that's close enough. And so that for me is just, that captures what was special about him. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Ed Ruscha and Doran, Deborah Treisman. The book is called The Dream Colony, The World of Walter Hopps. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.